Yeah, uh, about two years ago when Hannah told me that the Lord was calling her to China, I, I knew that she would go to China eventually, but she, uh, she said, the Lord is calling me now, and I said, wait, Hannah, she was at that time, she was a PhD student at UCLA, um, and I told her, hey, Hannah, just, uh, just finish your school first. Uh, I said, you know, you, you, you put, you know, two years into it, you know, finish school. And she says, no, the Lord's calling me now. And uh, I said, you know, I was thinking, like, you know, meet a nice missionary husband, you know, <laughs> get married, you know, settle down a little bit, and then go off to China together. Uh, wouldn't that be great? But she kept saying, the Lord's calling me now. And, you know, at some points I joked with her. I said, listen, you're in sunny L.A., <laughs> okay? You're going to uh, China, a city, Shanghai, where uh, there's actually no, no heater. Uh, there's no heat. Uh, I guess uh, anywhere in, in that southern area, there's, there's no heat. I said, listen, are you sure you want to do this? But, um, but the Lord called her. And, uh, and um, you know, the Lord has been moving in and through her. And, um, you know, continue to pray for her, continue to remember her. Uh, I believe the mission committee, uh, we have a luncheon later today. Um, and if you have a heart for, for China, for East Asia, and especially for campus ministry that's going on there, you know, please connect with her. Right now, she's about 65% uh, of uh, the funds that she needs for this year. And so if the Lord moves, uh, you know, please uh, speak to her or uh, speak to uh, our finance uh, head, uh, Deacon Che. Uh, currently, right now in China, there are uh, more Christians. There are more Christians in China than there are here in the States. Uh, and, you know, the church is, is a persecuted church. Uh, but still, there are more Christians in China than we have here in America. So praise God for that. Uh, let's continue in our worship and let's open up the word to Galatians chapter 2. Let's rise for the reading of God's Word. We'll read verses 15 to 21. We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. Yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law because by works of the law, no one will be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the reading of God's word. Thanks be to God. Last week, uh, during our congregational meeting, I announced that this verse, Galatians 2.20, uh, is going to be the theme verse for our congregation. And so I want, uh, here we go, uh, I want our congregation to do three things. I want our congregation to memorize it, I want our congregation to meditate, it, meditate on it, and I'm asking our congregation to meaningfully apply this verse. I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. 
and the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Now, throughout the year, we'll have occasions to talk about this verse, but today, what I want to do is I want to explain its context. I want to explain its background. Because this, Galatians 2.20, is one of those verses that we are familiar with, but because it's taken out of its context so much, a lot of this verse has become impoverished. A lot of it has been misunderstood. And so let me today uh, explain to you the background, the situation in which Paul is writing this letter and he pens this verse. Let me take you back to around A.D. 30. So imagine, you know, you're in a time machine, you go back to A.D. 30. In A.D. 30, Jesus had just died, rose again, and he ascended back into heaven. And when he ascended, shortly after, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit was poured out And thousands of people started to come to faith in Jesus through the preaching of the apostles. Now, all of this took place in a region called Judea. And so 99% of the people, almost all of the people who believed in Jesus, they were Jewish Christians. And so they were Christians who had accepted Jesus, but they were still Jewish And so they all went to the temple still, they all observed Jewish law, and all the men, they were still circumcised. You see, at this point in time, faith in Jesus was something that was added on to their already already existing Jewish religion. But something began to happen. It starts around Acts 10, and as it goes forward, something weird happens. This good news of the gospel, it starts to reach non-Jews. The good news of the gospel starts to reach north and west, and it starts to reach people who have no connection and no history to Judaism. It was mainly through the instrument of a guy named Paul. But through Paul, these people start to put their faith in Jesus. Now, at this point, the church has no idea what's going on, okay? And they're asking the question, wait, how is it that people who are not circumcised, how is it that people who don't observe the Jewish law, how can they receive the Holy Spirit and accept Jesus as their Lord and Savior? And at this point, the church leaders are saying, wait, there's something strange going on. Because up until this time, all of Christianity was Jewish Christianity. And so what happens? Paul, as he sees all of this go on, he comes back to Jerusalem. And, you know, Jerusalem is sort of the hub. It's the center of where all of this has started. And so when Paul comes back after his first missionary journey, he's in Jerusalem, and all the leaders gather, all the apostles gather, and they have a meeting or a council. This is in Acts 15. It's around A.D. 49. And when all the leaders gather at this very, very important meeting, Paul starts to bear witness. He says, listen, this is what happened I was going around preaching the good news, and all of these people, this, the Greek world, they started to accept Jesus. They received the Holy Spirit, and they were baptized. What does this mean? And they started to ask this question. This is a very, very important question in the history of the church. Is Jesus for everyone, or is Judaism a requirement? Does one have to first be a Jew to receive Jesus? Is Jewish religion a prerequisite to being 
a believer or a follower of Jesus. And at this meeting in AD 49, the Jerusalem Council, the leaders, the apostles, they make the decision. After hearing that all that God has been doing, they say, no, you don't. Jesus is for everyone. We cannot deny what God is doing. Jesus is for everyone. Now, the apostles, what they do in, at this council, they make this decision thinking that it only has bearing on the Gentiles. But they start to think, wait, what does this mean? If Gentiles don't have to be Jewish because Jesus is sufficient, if Gentiles don't have to be Jewish because righteousness is through Jesus, if Gentiles don't have to be Jewish because the fulfillment of the Jewish law is found in Jesus, if that's the reason why Gentiles don't have to become Jews, it also means that Jewish Christians no longer have to be Jews. It means that Jewish Christians are no longer under law, but they are now under grace in Jesus. And at this point, this point, the church or Christianity begins to break away from Judaism. At this point, the leaders of the church, they realize that faith in Jesus and lawful Judaism are two separate systems. One cannot be both because the very premise of faith in Jesus is acknowledging that the law and circumcision are all powerless. And so, you know, sometimes we tend to misunderstand the history of the church. It was actually decades after Jesus ascended that the church finally began to understand the full meaning of the cross. But, but there were still some Jewish Christians who did not agree. These people were called the Judaizers. It was a group of people who did not agree with what the apostles had decided on about what Paul was doing. And so this group, they had the habit of visiting churches planted by Paul, churches founded on the gospel. They would visit the churches after Paul would leave, and they would say something like this. They would go into the churches and say, you know that fellow Paul? He's right. He's right. Faith in Jesus is important, but he left something out. To really become the people of God, you need Jesus, but you also need to keep the Jewish law. This is what they were saying. Now, why were the Judaizers saying these things? Well, these people, these Jewish Christians, they weren't bent on evil. Their motives were not on deliberately deceiving. They weren't just evil people trying to mess up the church. But these Judaizers they actually feared what Paul was doing. You know what they thought? They thought, hey, if they just become Christians by faith in Jesus, if all, that's all that matters, you know what's going to happen? They're just going to go on sinning freely. They were thinking, you know, if you're going to let them in, let them in the right way. Make sure they are initiated. Make sure they understand what they're supposed to do. You see, the Judaizers, they were fearful that once faith in Jesus became the be-all, end-all, that the churches, that they would become immoral. 
that they would just go on sinning freely. And the Judaizers, they wanted to protect that. Now, the churches of Galatia, they were enticed into this meaning, into this message. And they thought, yeah, you know what? You're right. Faith in Jesus is important, but we still need the Jewish law. Now, Paul, he hears of this. He hears of what's going on in the churches in Galatia, and he is livid. He is mad. He is upset. He is like Jason Kelsey mad. He is, his blood is boiling. And he starts penning this letter, saying, what did that man say? He's wrong. What did that man say? He's wrong. What did that man say? He's wrong. And he writes this letter attacking what the Judaizers were saying. He writes this letter warning the church that in their attempts of adding any righteousness, of adding on their own righteousness to Christ's righteousness, what they are doing is they are in fact destroying the whole thing. Now, you get the context, right? This is what's going on. And let me go very quickly through today's passage. Think of this situation, this context. And now let's read verses 15 to verse 16. Paul says this, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners. And I wish that you know, we could actually put quotations over sinners because that's what Paul is doing. He's saying, listen, we ourselves are Jews. But even though we are Jews, we know that we are not justified by the law, but we are justified by faith. That's what he's saying. Yet we know, verse 16, that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by the works of the law, because by the works of the law, no one will be justified. Paul is saying this, listen, you Gentiles who think that you need to keep the law to be justified, listen, I myself am a Jew, and we know that this is not it. So let's get that straight. He makes that clear. And then in verse 17, he says this, but if... And this is a little tricky, but if, if we understand the context, I think we can understand this. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. In verse 17, what is Paul doing? He's responding to the Judaizers' claim that only faith in Jesus will lead to a sinful life. Paul is responding to the claim that if you are a Christian and faith is the be-all, end-all, that will just lead to a licentious life, and that Jesus is actually a servant of sinners. Paul is responding to that, and he says, no way, no way. And verse 18, he says this, the only way that I am a sinner is if I rebuild what I tore down. That's the only way that I'm a sinner. In other words, because the law has been fulfilled and it's no longer valid, the only way that I can actually be a transgressor, the only way that I can actually be a sinner is if I go back to it. Do you get that? The only way that I can actually be found a sinner is if I rebuild what has been torn down. If I go back to the Jewish law, then I'm a sinner. And he says, no, we don't do that. And verse 19, he says this. For through the law, I died to the law. 
so that I might live to God. In other words, Paul is saying this, I am dead to the law. The law no longer has any bearing on me. You know, it's, I think this is a really powerful statement, for through the law I died to the law. Have you ever used the statement like, you're dead to me? Have you ever said that to anyone? Maybe, maybe your siblings or any close friends. <laughs> you're dead to me. What does that mean? I think that's the most, that's the most uh, negative thing you can say. You know, saying like, I hate you, that's not that bad. It means that the person still has emotions and feelings towards you, right? But when you say, you're dead to me, what are you saying? You're actually saying, I don't, I'm not going to think about you. I'm not going to care about you. You have no influence on me anymore. There's no bearing that you have on me. You have no hold on me anymore. You're dead to me. I care nothing about you. And that's what Paul is saying. The law is now dead to me. It has absolutely nothing to do with my life. He cuts the law off because of what Christ has done. I have died to the law. But he doesn't end there. He says this, I died to the law so that I now live to God. So in this one statement, right, what is he doing? He's actually building and preparing what he's about to say in Galatians 2.20. That he has been crucified with Christ, and now it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. So in this one statement, he's actually answering both claims. He's actually saying, well, you know, does that mean that we're still a sinner? He's saying, no, because I have died to the law. Does that mean that we can live a licentious life? We can just go on sinning? Is that what the Christian life is about? He says, no, because what, why? The life that I now live, I live by faith. The life I now live, it's not I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. This is what Paul is actually saying. He's summing up the Christian religion with this verse. I don't know, have, have you memorized it yet? Maybe we can say it together. Can we recite it? Verse 20, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. What Paul is saying here, summing up the Christian religion is this, at the cross, our old selves were crucified together with Christ. That old self, that sinful self has now been done away with and the life that we now live, it's not me, but it's Jesus who lives in me. And right now, the life that we live in the flesh, it's a life characterized by faith in Jesus. Faith in the one who loved me and gave himself for me. You know, what I just presented to you, the context of Galatians 2 is, yes, it's a historic understanding of what's going on and what causes Paul to write these verses. But this situation is actually not foreign to us. And let me just tackle it by, um, tackle the same, thing, same two things by talking about two things, legalism and antinomianism, or the other, the opposite, uh, a freedom to sin. Notice that the legalism that, that Galatians is talking about 
is not brute legalism. It isn't Judaism, but it's Christianity mixed with law observance. You know, we can think, right, hey, what's wrong with adding my own righteousness on top of Jesus' righteousness, right? It's like, you know, if you have a, a pot and you have all this, this nice food, what do you do? You're like, you know what, let's all just bring in all the good stuff in and let's just mix it up, and isn't it better that way? But Paul's argument is this. If ever you add a single ounce of your own righteousness to Jesus' righteousness, what you are actually doing is you are nullifying the whole thing. You are nullifying the grace of God. You are building up what has already been torn down. And so in the Christian, I know, I know many of us will say, yes, I am, I'm justified by faith. Yes, I believe in Jesus. That's, that's what a Christian is. But we have to examine ourselves to make sure that we are not adding even a, the slightest bit of our own merit to gain God's favor. You know, they say that a chain is only as strong as its weakest link, right? So you can have a chain made of the strongest substance in the world. You could have a chain made up of diamonds and sapphire, things that will never break. But if even one of those links, if they are made up of, let's say, paper, that chain can hold nothing. A chain is only as strong as its weakest link. And with this in mind, we have to constantly examine ourselves that we are not depending even in the slightest bit on our own merit or our own deeds. And you know how it's manifested in Christians today? Just if I can throw out a few examples. If you think that you are a better Christian than someone else, that might be a sign. If you think that you're a better Christian than other people, that might be a sign that you are trying to add on your own merit. Or if you think that God will reward you, if you think that God will pay you back, that might be a sign. Or the very opposite, if you think that God is punishing you, that might be another sign. If you think God is repaying me back evil for what I have done, that might be another sign that you think you can add on to Christ's righteousness. Faith in Jesus is exclusive. Faith in Jesus means faith in Jesus alone. It's an all or nothing proposition. And I want you to just imagine, just imagine for a moment Right? The last day has come. Jesus has come back. And you stand before the judgment seat. What is your defense going to be? Your defense is, I'm united to Jesus. It's not going to be, I'm united to Jesus, and I also did this. I'm united to Jesus, and I served the church. I'm united to Jesus, and I did all of this, God, for you. That's not your answer. Your answer is, I'm united to Jesus. You know, even though we know that we're going to say this on the last day, confidently before the judgment seat, even though we know that this is the answer that we are going to give, we need to rehearse this every day. 
We need to rehearse this every day, saying, I have no righteousness on my own. I depend wholly on Christ. Jesus is everything. I love the way that, that, that Paul puts it elsewhere. Philippians 1, Jesus is everything. Jesus is everything. And so, we need to constantly remind ourselves and examine ourselves to see if there is any effort in us to try to add on to God's merit, to try to add on to God's favor. The second thing is antinomianism, or what's often called licentiousness. And this is the viewpoint that, well, now that I have faith in Jesus, I could just go on freely sinning. Is that the case? I would assume that many of us, if we're not legalists, might fall into this. Many of us sitting here might feel as though we have a free license to sin. Does faith in Jesus mean that we are free to sin? The short answer is no. Because faith in Jesus means that we have died with him and now we live with him. In fact, this union is so strong that Paul says, I don't live anymore, but Jesus who lives in me. Paul says elsewhere in, in Philippians 1, he says, to live is Christ. That's another way to sum this up. To live is Christ, to die is gain. Or Colossians 3, 4, when Christ who is your life Jesus, who is your life. Friends, this is where our power comes from. Our power over sin, to win over sin, to be free from sinning, is from Jesus who lives in us. Jesus who is our life. Jesus who is every reason for life here in this world. You know, let me just, as, you, as you're thinking about these things, let me just say this. You know, only a legalist is worried about licentiousness. Only a legalist is worried about licentiousness. Licentiousness belongs in the old system. It has no place in faith. They are different operating systems. You know, one of the reasons why maybe we might feel powerless towards sin or powerless against sin is because of our tendency to go back and forth between these two things. We're a legalist and then we're an antinomianist. We're a legalist and then we're an antinomianist. This old system has absolutely no power to save us from sin. It has no righteousness on its own. But our real power comes from our faith union with Christ. Jesus who is our life the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. The Christian is not free from temptation. The Christian, we are not free from facing the temptations of this world. But we have given the power to win over all things. And Paul here is instructing his followers, the church in Galatia, to wield this sword, to take up this sword, not to take up the sword of the law, not to take up the sword of good deeds and their own righteousness, but take up this sword where we have been crucified with Jesus and now Jesus lives in us. This is where our power comes from. To live is Christ. To die is gain. May this be your power 
this week and as we go forth. Join me in prayer.